never miss an episode of Pull Up a Chair, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast. Follow us on Spotify and Anchor. Follow us on Instagram at pullupachair.podcast and like us on Facebook at Pull Up a Chair with Ashley Mayer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pull Up a Chair. I'm so excited today because I have my first ever guest on the podcast, and it is Caroline Schroeder. Caroline is a survivor of sexual assault and had firsthand experience with the Title IX office at LSU when she was a student there. And since she graduated from LSU in May of 2020, she's worked as a freelance writer for philanthropic organizations, which she says has been useful as she continues to advocate for survivors and demand that LSU reform its policies for responding to sexual and domestic violence. We're going to go into the scandal at LSU, Title IX, Me Too, the politics of it, everything. So get really excited and welcome, Caroline. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. And I wanted to preface before we go into it, Caroline and I have known each other for a very long time. We were both born and raised in Baton Rouge, same grade school, high school. We did Girl Scouts together, soccer team. Your dad was our coach. (laughs) And... Baton Rouge is a small community. Everybody kind of knows everybody, especially when you grow up at the same schools and extracurriculars together. So not the first time we're talking. But on November 16, 2020, USA Today published an article about LSU and them mishandling sexual assault allegations and domestic violence allegations against students and student athletes your name wasn't released to the public and then you saw other survivors come forward on twitter and you tweeted quote i was one of the anonymous girls in the article that didn't want my name in the national news but i'm finding it hard to sit back and watch quietly lsu did nothing but torture us for months and i don't want anyone to forget that what was that experience like for you just tweeting it out there and now your name is public Well, it was just Twitter. It didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. When Kenny Jacoby from USA Today, who wrote that whole report, when he first reached out to me in August and we first started talking, he let me know from the beginning that I wouldn't have to decide if I was going to put my name on it until the very end. And I used the next three months to debate whether or not I was going to have my name in the story. And it wasn't until the night before he was sending it to be published that I was just like, you know what? I can't do this. And I've been talking to some of the other women who were in the story and it seemed like everyone was in the same position where it was like a last minute impulsive decision, whether you were going to put your name in it or not. And then the next day when I saw that a bunch of them actually did put their name in it and their picture, me and another girl, Sydney, were like, oh my God, Like we felt really bad. And we felt like we felt like, okay, we need to say something just for like solidarity with them because we just felt like, okay, if they could do it, we can do it. And we didn't want to just throw them in the deep end. And it felt like at the time going on Twitter would be like a pretty inconsequential way to do it right. compared to being in like the USA Today story. But then it got like a lot of, like my tweet got a lot of retweets. So did Sydney. And then like our DMs, our Facebook messages were just blowing up with people. And that really, like, it got the word out like crazy, um, which right. I didn't expect, but that was probably for the better because 
I think that's what made me like tweet it out. Like, I don't think I would have had the yeah. to do it. Before we started recording this, I went back and I looked at your tweet and I went to the replies and obviously so many people were supporting you, but then also you had local news saying, Hey, I'm with so-and-so channel would you know would you like to talk to us what was your reaction to more reporters maybe reaching out to you after the fact um it kind of felt like okay are you sure you guys want to be talking to me because like a lot of the big stuff in the story a big part of the scandal was the involvement of the athletics department at LSU and I would just I replied to everyone saying like look I'm happy to talk to you but just so you know I'm I didn't have a case with uh, with athletics and um, then they still wanted to talk and that was scary at first, but I have to say like at this point, like it's all, everything that needs to be said has been said. So there's nothing to hide anymore. So it's not really, it doesn't bother me anymore. Good. And I will add that when I saw that you tweeted about it, I was just because I I woke up and I read the story and I just remember seeing that you were a survivor of this situation and I was just heartbroken because I was like I know this person you know and it just I think for I feel like sometimes Elish you know this happens a lot and my initial thought was like oh my god like I feel like it really hasn't happened to people that I'm, you know, no. And so it was like that face to the story sort of situation. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, that like, that I think is what made, I can't remember who I was talking about this with recently, but that whole putting a face to the story thing, I didn't even realize until maybe a couple weeks after the story came out, how important it was that yeah. the women who did put their names and their pictures in that initial article were what made it big. Because what a lot of people yeah. don't realize is Kenny Jacoby actually reported on this story back in August, but yes. it, got, yes. it got no attention, but that's because he didn't have the stories of those other survivors. He didn't have pictures. He didn't have names. And I think really what did it was seeing people's faces and like putting it yeah. to the story, as you said. Yeah, it definitely makes it more real as like weird as that is to say. Um, obviously, it wasn't the first time you had heard the story. So when did you kind of even how did you even get in contact with USA Today? Well, I read. I don't remember how. I I saw it on Twitter. Someone must have retweeted it. Someone had shared that story from August, the initial report that Kenny Jacoby did. Okay. Um, And I read the story. And like I said, it didn't have any names in it, but it did talk about how these cases were pretty clear cut cases of sexual or domestic violence and how the school had just covered it up completely. And like there was proof to show that they had covered it up. And I just retweeted it and I quote tweeted it. And I said something like for anyone who's ever had to deal with title nine at LSU, this isn't a surprise. They need to fire people in that office, like something mm-hmm. to give. And it was kind of like screaming into the void at this point, because the only people that followed me on Twitter at this point were more or less like just people that I knew. Right. But Kenny Jacoby saw my retweet and he did. Nice. And that's how everything started. Awesome. 
That's really awesome. And USA Today, I'm sure, I mean, I, I mean, I don't speak for you, but I'm sure a lot of you are thankful that because it's now snowballed into something where people are pissed off. Yeah, yeah. And they definitely knew what they were doing when they did that because, like, I still me and some of the other women are still in contact with Kenny. Like he's watching, he's not from Louisiana. I think he's from Florida or something, but he's like, he's watching these legislative hearings. He's watching board of supervisors meetings. He's like texting us during it being like, are y'all watching this? Are y'all seeing this? You know, like he definitely knew what he was doing when he did that story. Like he did it with the intent of making change. Yes. That's awesome. Great reporter right there. Yeah. (laughs) But for those of you who don't know or or only see this as a, you know, you've seen a headline about it, essentially they not only covered up sexual assault and domestic violence, they made the victims go through absolute hell and Caroline can, you know, speak to that. But USA Today drops a story and now then LSU hires an independent firm to investigate the allegations Um, of LSU's mishandling of the situation. Um, But I'll kind of just give you the floor here to explain the scandal in the best way possible. Okay, so pretty much the way that Title IX was set up at LSU was, I thought at least when I was going through the process, it seemed that LSU's policy was more or less in line with federal guidelines. Um, I did find out later that that's not entirely true. So for example, when you file a report at LSU, when you, technically it's a complaint. So you file a complaint of misconduct against another student who is the respondent and you're the complainant, right? And someone at the Title IX office gets your complaint They'll just read it and decide, does it look like misconduct happened that we need to investigate? You know, like if I said like, you know, um, this person, you know, cursed me out in class and I filed a complaint, they would read the complaint and say, okay, no, that's not misconduct. We're not investigating. But if you say something serious, like I was sexually assaulted at, you know, a tailgate or something, then yeah, they're going Mm -hmm. to investigate. So they open the investigation And Title IX has a lead investigator. And at LSU, that is Jeffrey Scott, who is actually a former FBI investigator. So he has a lot of experience, pretty good background in this. And he has 30 days, 30 business days to conduct an investigation, talk to witnesses, talk to the complainant, the respondent, get any evidence that he can, rape kit. Um, like I said, other witnesses that might have seen it, um, mm-hmm. video surveillance, anything. And then he writes up a report and decides, did the respondent, is the respondent responsible? And if so, why? And then if they are responsible, then everyone has the opportunity to appeal. Or if he's mm-hmm. not responsible, everyone has the opportunity to appeal. So let's say the respondent says, no, I didn't do it, so I'm going to appeal. Well, then it goes to the head of the Title IX office or the Title IX coordinator, that's Jenny Stewart. Jenny then investigates the investigation. She basically goes over everything, makes sure nothing's missing, makes sure everything was done properly, and then decides, 
was Jeffrey Scott correct or not and why? And then again, everyone has the opportunity to appeal. And then you go to student advocacy and accountability where this guy, Jonathan Sanders, will decide what the outcomes are. Outcomes are disciplinary measures, although they're not strictly punitive. The point is really just how are we going to make sure that this never happens again? And how are we going to make sure that the complainant is safe? And Mm -hmm. at LSU, one problem with this part of the process is that Jonathan Sanders, even though he was just supposed to determine what disciplinary measures were necessary, he often ended up reinvestigating for himself, even though he didn't have the resources to do so. Um, And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times he would either undermine people's story in any way that he could, sometimes deliberately. Um, He also, I think it was Jade Lewis, she had a domestic violence complaint against Drake Davis. He had... Yes. Beat her at a gas station and left her there with broken ribs and bruises all over. The police came. They wrote a report on it. There was surveillance footage from the gas station. LSU's Title IX office found him responsible. And then Jonathan Sanders didn't discipline Drake Davis and actually disciplined Jade Lewis because he had investigators go to her dorm room and they found a candle. And you're not supposed to have a candle in your dorm room. That is just... When I read that in the report, I was that I I can't. I, I think that was the most sickening thing that I read. And like I heard right. like I have my own problems with Jonathan Sanders, but that really floored me too. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. like clearly retaliatory. Yeah. A candle. You're worried about a candle when this girl has been completely just destroyed by football player. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the football player was not punished and actually kept playing football, right? So that was a clear instance of cover-up. But anyway, let's say, like in my case, Jonathan Sanders gives you, he hands down disciplinary measures, and either you or the respondent don't like those measures. Again, you mm-hmm. either of you has the opportunity to appeal. And when that happens, you go to a university hearing panel. Those are pretty controversial, but I just want to say that at least at LSU, at this point in time, the hearing panels were really rare because a lot of people just gave up earlier in the process. It was rare Mm -hmm. that it would go to a hearing panel. But if you do, a hearing panel is three faculty members who have no prior contact with anyone involved in your case. It's totally independent. And... Everyone, you and the respondent can bring representatives. It can be a lawyer, it can Mm -hmm. be your parents, whoever. And you Mm -hmm. all share your story. Investigators share what they found. They decide if the person is guilty or not. And then they decide final disciplinary measures. So, so questions. Sorry. In the panel, it like obviously this isn't like a court of law situation. So, if you say you wanted your mom to come and represent you, she could then just be like your lawyer or representing you in the situation. And she would kind of speak for you. There's no like rule on who represents you. Well, yeah, there's no rule on who represents you, but at this point in LSU's policies up until August of 2020, the representative could be in the room with you and could pass you notes or whisper something in your ear, 
but they weren't allowed to talk and they weren't actually allowed to sit at the table with you and everyone else. They sat behind you and they could just lean in and advise you. So you would have had to represent yourself in these panel hearings. Yeah, they're not allowed to talk, but they can they can talk to you. They just can't speak to the panel. However, now, now they can. Um, there's, you know, the option to cross-examine both the complainant mm -hmm. and the respondent. Their representatives can cross-examine witnesses or other parties. Okay. So that has changed since then. And then, so I guess, you know, from everything that came out of LSU's covering this up and this wasn't just, you know, a professor didn't speak up. This is like the athletic directors, head coaches, the president of the university. This was a huge law, you know, this was from the top down sort of deal. It, so <laughs> I just basically, I broke down the process and scandal yeah. that really came from this well, I, I kind of briefly mentioned, you know, how Jonathan Sanders didn't discipline a football player and instead disciplined the woman who had filed the complaint. But and that's just one piece of the scandal. Part of it, there's a lot of right. pieces. The first part is the fact that there are five investigations, basically, from the time that you file a complaint, you're being investigated five times. You know, the process as on a federal level, Which the way is, that it's designed, it's supposed to be not too long, like too much of a burden on either the respondent or the complainant. Um, and right. five separate investigations where someone can be found guilty or not guilty. All that does is confuse everybody. Cause let's say two people right. find him guilty, three people don't or whatever. You're not helping anybody in that situation. You're not helping the respondent or the complainant. So that's one piece of the problem. Right. The next part is if the respondent, you know, the attacker is someone of importance or sometimes even not mm -hmm. the school, whether it's like you said, athletics coaches or department officials or Jonathan Sanders or other people in the Title IX office are actively obstructing the process so that they can ensure that these mm -hmm. people don't ever see any sort of accountability for their actions. Right. And it's it's like... <sighs> For my thing, I guess in the back of my head, it's like I could, I don't agree with it by any means, but I could maybe understand why they're protecting the athletes. But for just an average student, like what's the incentive there? Is it just you don't, they don't want to deal with so it? So that's something that a lot of people have been guessing at, including me and like, you know, now the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights is investigating. And yes. I talked to two or three guys from the DOE and they were, they asked me the same question. And I said, my guess, and I think I said this to Kenny too, my guess is that, so if a respondent is punished for, you know, his or her actions, they have a lot of incentive mm -hmm. to sue the school, right? If they're unhappy because they have nothing to, they have True. nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. Whereas survivors are a lot more mm -hmm. reluctant in any situation to speak up. It already takes a lot to file a complaint. And if that complaint doesn't go their way, they don't have a lot left in them to say, no, I'm going to take this to court. 
So my right. guess is from a legal perspective, from a financial perspective, they see it as mm -hmm. a cost saving measure if they can, you know, mm -hmm. reduce the amount of times they have to appear in court for these sort of things. And the guys right. at DOE said that they hear a lot of that when they investigate schools for this kind of stuff. It seems like that is a concern mm -hmm. of a lot of universities. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case with LSU because they do have a lot of issues with funding. And that would make sense. It doesn't make it right, but that would explain it. Right. And then also just like talking about the financials of it, money talks and especially for LSU and for the Tiger Athletic Foundation. And this year, their give day for 2021, they raised more than $2 million. And in 2019, they raised $800,000. And so I had seen stuff about, oh, LSU Give Day is coming up. They're really promoting it. And I'm like, oh, I, I was thinking, you know, maybe the, maybe the money aspect of it will not show up because of this scandal that's going on. And that wasn't the case here. And so that's like an avenue. You know, a lot of times when you want to boycott something or you want to, you know, really make an impact money is a is a a means of doing that and the fact that they raised so much money on their give day was i was very disappointed yeah with and that. that also like a lot of people have been saying i've seen it a lot online people have been saying oh if you want real change stop giving money to lsu stop buying their merchandise stop going to sports games and it's yeah. like okay first of all that's not really a viable solution because first of all, athletics isn't the only problem. Okay. And second, you yeah. know, as you just said, there are still a ton of people giving a ton of money to LSU, regardless of the situation. And it also shows right. that like, yeah, this PR fumble has not had an effect on them, you know? So really the financial right. loss of, there is no financial loss to covering these things up. They win by right. not having to be in court as much and they win because nobody really cares enough to stop giving them money. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like I always say, power protects power. People that are giving money to LSU, whether it be through a give day or TAF, are usually very wealthy people who are in powerful positions. And so power exactly. protects power. What do you think, you know, so after all of this comes out, Senior Associate Athletic Director Miriam Seeger, Executive De Deputy Director of Athletics Ver Verge Osbury, they only get a collective 51 days of leave without pay. And that's the, the biggest consequence for an employee that's still at LSU if that's the punishment, like, what do you think is actually going to make a change here? Because these people are staying at LSU, the ones who had perpetrated the problems. Everyone is, is pretty much still at LSU except for a select few. And so how do you how do you think LSU actually moves forward and actually ensures that nothing like this happens again? Well, I've heard some rumors from inside the administration that, and these okay. are just rumors. I don't know if I believe them, but okay. there are, yeah, rumors. rumors. There are rumors that 
there is possibly more to come. Part of it is they have all these HR rules that makes it hard to fire people. Like, you know, they don't want to be exposed legally again. Um, But another Mm -hmm. thing that I'm hearing is that for these, so for example, Miriam Seeger and um, Burge Osbury are both high salary employees and they meet the salary Mm -hmm. threshold for basically if they're hiring and firing needs approval from the board. And I've been a big critic Mm -hmm. from the board from the start and I would be willing to put money on the fact that, and I believe this is true from it's, I've heard rumors about this and I totally believe it that the board really is the one putting their foot down and not allowing these big changes that need to happen, happen. So Mm. that's really, I think if you want to see anything change, you have to start with the board because they seem reluctant to make the changes down the ladder that we need to see, you know, like appropriately staffing the Title IX office, getting rid of Jonathan Sanders, getting rid of all these people in the athletics department. If they're not letting that happen, then we can't do anything. So I think the first step is to get rid of the board, which sadly, there's no movement in that area. Um, Right. And sorry, isn't it John Bell Edwards can fire the board? Yeah, he can and he he won't. Um, Right. Because he's, you know, definitely has ties. with. He has ties with an LSU. I mean. The relationship between the Louisiana governor and LSU, that's been a political scandal since Huey Long. Like, that's been a known thing for decades. This is nothing new. But he also, I I think a big part of the problem is, and it's not just with John Bell Edwards, again, it goes back decades. The people that the governor appoints to the board of supervisors are always very wealthy local business people Mm -hmm. who definitely right. have ties to whichever governor is appointing them. You know, this is not independent. This is definitely right. some cronyism, right. right? So he does not want to cross these people right. because he needs them and they need him. So it's a, it's an old boys club. Oh yeah, for yep. sure. Power protects power. Um, so nothing really huge or substantial coming out of LSU as in the, like in the sense of holding people accountable, but Les Miles, former LSU football coach, who was recently the football coach at the University of Kansas, he has, or they said they parted ways with each other, which, you know, pretty much means he was forced out. He had been sexually harassing and kind of grooming uh, the women that were around him and the football team. And so the university of Kansas and him parted ways F King Alexander, former LSU president. um, He resigns from Oregon state university after they have hearings with him. And it's just like, it's, it, it goes back to, okay, Kansas university of Kansas is making these moves. Oregon state university is making these moves and LSU just hasn't. And, you know, just like we were saying, it's the power. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, it's kind of like, it's a very complicated web of money and power and politics all interconnected between whoever the football coach is, whoever the governor is, 
whoever the president is, mm -hmm. et cetera, so on and so forth. They're all very connected. Like mm -hmm. as the story continues to unfold, right. one thing that I, a weird thing that I didn't expect to come from this story is the fact that we're learning so much more about how deeply and corruptly connected a lot of these moving parts are, yes. um, which I think it's good. It's, it's a weird right. thing from this story, but it is a good yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, it's weird to see. Right. They definitely, it's weird to see other universities acting and LSU isn't. And that does, I do have questions about that, but yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. Why. Right. My freshman year at LSU, it was my first semester, October of 2016, I went to a fraternity bus trip to New Orleans. It was, um, mm -hmm. I think it was a how yeah, it was a Halloween themed party. And I, you know, since I was a freshman and I was new to a sorority and Greek life in general, I didn't really know anyone, but other girls in my sorority were all going on this bus trip. Right. And they said, um, you know, everyone was saying, oh, these guys need dates. Who wants to go? And I wanted to go. So I got set up with someone mm -hmm. I had never met. I think I met him for maybe five minutes at the beginning of the bus trip. I, yeah. Typical freshman yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. People and I also like, it was clear this wasn't like a date date. You know, it was kind of like, okay, he just needed someone to go with him. And we right. talked for a few minutes. He was nice. Seemed all right. Um, and so we start at the fraternity house and you start drinking at the fraternity house for half an hour to an hour. Right. Then you get on a bus and you go to New Orleans. So that's another hour and a half of drinking. And then you get to a bar down there and, you know, that's several more hours of drinking. And then you have a bus ride back to Baton Rouge. So mm -hmm. all in all, you're looking at at least six hours of drinking. Right. And drinking. so I remember getting off the bus in New Orleans and after that mm -hmm. things started getting hazy like I I will there are big parts yeah. of my time in the bar I just do not remember and um right anyway I get back to I remember getting I distinctly remember leaving the bar and getting onto the bus to go back home and I had some water and mm -hmm. I was starting to like recover I suppose and I was thinking, okay, night's almost over. I'm just going to sit at the front of the bus like I was before and just lay down and try and, like, you mm -hmm. know, collect myself. So I lay down and right. I fall asleep. And when I wake up, there's this guy who I remember seeing him on the bus ride to mm -hmm. New Orleans. But this was not my and date. And this was not um, your date. This was just some – this was somebody else's date. And he is – like, yeah. you know, I'm unconscious and I'm just coming to, and he's groping me. He's got one arm right. around me, like touching my boobs and reaching up under my Ugh. skirt. And he's saying, he's, he's kind of mumbling stuff to me. And I couldn't really figure out what was going on, but I just mm -hmm. said, get off of me. And I couldn't really move, but right. he said like, oh no, 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 it's fine. Whatever. You know, trying to like basically tell oh. me like, oh no, this isn't really happening. And then I said, I said, well, get off, oh. you know, get off me or I'm going to punch you. And I couldn't move, but I, yeah. the threat was enough. He ran away. And then when the bus right. got back to Baton Rouge, I just, I think we were in the parking lot of Herget and Miller and I just zoomed on over to my dorm, which was nearby. 
didn't really talk about the incident much over the next few months, if at all. I don't mm -hmm. remember sharing it with anyone for at least a few months. But then yeah. about a year and a half later, I was out at Zippy's with some friends and there were some people there who were mm -hmm. friends of friends. I didn't know all that well. And one of them was talking about that bus trip. And I said, oh, I was on that and I hated, like I had a terrible time. And they, I suppose this person kind of picked up what I was saying as soon as I said it, because she was like, what happened? And I told her and she said, okay, that's weird because mm -hmm. the same thing happened to my friend that night. Okay, that's weird. And she said, do you know who did it? And I said, I don't know this person's name, never met them. And she said, okay, if I showed you a picture, would you recognize him? And I said, yeah. So she shows me a picture and I was like, that's definitely him. I don't just remember the face, but I remember the costume he was wearing. Right? And in this picture yeah. she showed me, he was in his costume. And I was like, yeah, that's him. And she said, and he did the same thing to her. And I was like, oh, that's oh. a big development because up until this point, I had no idea why he did what he did, you know, as as is often the yeah. case in these situations, I was always looking for a reason to blame myself. Like I was thinking, what did I, you know, maybe I said something to him when I was at the bar that I don't remember saying, maybe I met him, you know, whatever. Yeah, but it's like, even that, yeah, you know, no, it doesn't. doesn't matter. It's, it, you know, it's all about what that person did right, to exactly. you in that But moment. then when I heard that he had done it to someone else, it was like, okay, this wasn't right. a lapse in judgment, which would be inexcusable, even if it was just me. But hearing that it happened to someone else, I felt right. a bit, not just vindicated, but I was also worried, thinking, how often has this yeah. happened? You know, who else is exposed? So that drove yeah. me to file a complaint because I just thought, I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to pursue this you know, heart, like, I'm not going to really push for it. But like, I want it on paper that it happened to me. Because then if someone else files a report, yeah, then you know, that'll be like a corroborated story. So I did right. that. And I heard nothing right. for a year. And then finally, I heard that Title Nine was going to be investigating. And yeah, After and a year. that, yeah, and that the Insane. other girl had filed a report. And it was only after we were notified that they were going to be investigating that she reached out to me on Facebook. This is um, Elizabeth Andrews. Um, and that's when we finally touch. So that was in February yeah. 2019 when we heard that yeah. they were going to be investigating. And then in March, they contacted everyone and they started their investigation. And anyway, it goes on for so long. And um, right. And then it just goes into the them just yeah, treating pretty you much like, like shit. they gave so much preferential treatment to the respondent um, on multiple occasions, mm -hmm. and like I firmly believe in you know the whole equal rights and the due process part of the process, right? And I wouldn't want special treatment, but the fact that they were giving him special treatment, like no, not fair. Um, right. So I was constantly, right. especially towards the end when, cause I was out of, I was studying abroad when the investigation started, but by the time I got back 
in August and things were really getting on my nerves. I was constantly going to people's offices, yelling at them, trying to get them to do something. Nobody was helping us at all. And to make matters worse, Liz had classes with the respondent and he, she couldn't go to class, you know, like that wasn't an option and they were not helping her at all with the situation. Um, Anyway, we go to, he appeals, appeals, appeals. He was found guilty at every stage of the process. And then finally, we get to the university hearing panel. So after we met with Jonathan Sanders, then we, you know, the disciplinary measures that were recommended were anger management and a deferred suspension. Um, And then when we got those, I thought those disciplinary measures for both, to both me and Liz, it just didn't seem like enough. So we, she didn't feel comfortable appealing that because she was like, she said she was just exhausted at this point. Like it had been more than six months, I think. Understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, but I did because I was like, you know, I didn't do all this for nothing. Like we're going to exhaust all of our options. And like the biggest. And the punishments were just like, it just didn't match the crime. And yeah, for you for just keep, keeping on fighting well yeah but like I uh, the big fear like going into the UHP was that they're gonna have to like they could say he didn't do it like even though at this point five investigations have said that he did there was still the issue that they could just decide oh wait never mind and then so that was like a big fear but for me even though that would really suck I was like whatever because at this point saying guilty doesn't mean anything because there's no meaningful disciplinary measures attached to it so why not just try right Um, so I did appeal and so it went to the UHP Liz brought her dad as her representative I brought Susan Barris she's a social worker for Lighthouse. That's LSU's Survivor Outreach Network. Um, And she kind of like, yeah, she kind of been helping me throughout the process. And I knew I had a friend she had helped too. And she was just really nice. And even though like, I didn't think I was going to like be needing her advice at any point, it was just like, she was kind of like my emotional support, you know? Right. Um, And same with Liz's dad. Like he was just there for emotional support. And um, I can't imagine being a dad and just having to sit through that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how she brought, like, I don't think I could have brought my dad. Right. (laughs) Like your dad probably wouldn't have been able to sit through it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think I could have brought my dad in fairness to Liz. And then in fairness to Liz's dad, I don't know if I was a dad or a mom, like if I could handle all of that, but like, kudos to those right and also I think it had like you know so after they did end up finding the respondent guilty again and then they do this little thing where they have everyone they had me and Liz and the respondent all give impact statements where we just share like just our thoughts and feelings basically and like what we're looking for from this process yada 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 and I think Liz's dad being there made a huge difference because like the panel had to look at this man, like, you know, like comforting his daughter. Um, Right. But um, yeah, that was rough. But 
anyway, then the respondent did have a lawyer there who was passing him notes and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, they tell us like, okay, you know, after he was, you know, found responsible and they, we all gave our impact statements and they said, okay, everyone leave the room and we're going to like discuss the outcome. So me and Liz were sent off to like a little side room and the respondent was sent off to another one. And we waited for, I think like an hour. I don't really remember. And then they called us back in and I was looking in my lap, like I had my head down and I heard them read out like, you are suspended for two semesters. I didn't even flinch because like it didn't feel real you know oh, like I was like yeah I felt like I was in a dream like I wasn't dizzy or anything but I felt like really foggy and like I couldn't think straight and right and then I heard the respondent's lawyer go excuse me and interrupt the woman and then I was like that's what I realized like oh my god it's happening like <laughs> this is it you know like when I yeah. heard his outrage I was like wait I did hear her right he is suspended um, and then we were dismissed and we went back into our little side room where we had been like breaking and mm -hmm. um, we go back there and like, I, I was like shaking with excitement, but who's mm -hmm. embarrassed from Lighthouse, Liz and her dad were all crying. Like it was like the end of such a long road, you know? Right. And I'm sure it was just like a burden was lifted of like, oh my gosh, I, this is done. I can, you know, start to move forward from it. And then also, you know, I'm sure you had some pride in yourself of you single-handedly made this happen because you were so persistent about it. Yeah, there was like this, like, I was feeling like proud of us. But mm -hmm. also I think, and I think Liz should have been proud of herself, but I think because she was in close proximity to him, yeah. In the time, I think for her, it was like, more, she felt more relief than anything else, you know? Right. Um, But then, Go ahead. tragically, a couple months later, we see him at football games, we see him in the quad, and we find out that they are reviewing his case for no reason at all. Like, they had no reason to be doing this. And right. that while they review his case, they are letting him on campus and nobody, first of all, nobody warned us about that. So like we had no warning that we might be exposed. And right. also the fact that there's nothing in the policy that gives them that sort of power. Um, it was something that they sort of just arbitrarily decided. So um, that was really awful. So it really wasn't the end of the journey for us, you know, ultimately, right. but whatever. Um, and that's just, you know, they say, oh, we're here to protect the survivors. And it's just like, okay, like, what if you or Elizabeth were at the football game and he was sitting right next to you because, you know, y'all's tickets were next to each other or something like that. Or yeah, you, you found out, you know, you run into each other in the union or, you know, just walking on campus. And I just can't imagine one, the feeling of you're seeing this person and they're in your presence. And two, he was supposed to be suspended for two semesters. And why is he on campus? Yeah. And you had no prior knowledge of that. Yeah. And like, I, at one point, like, I remember, I think I, I saw him like 
somewhere, it was either on campus or near campus. And I went to go give, I like I was on my way to class and I was giving a presentation. It was a big presentation, right? And I got to yeah. class and like, I must've like looked pale or something, but um, it was actually a girl we went to high school with was sitting next to me in, in that class. And she reached over and she just like put her hand on my arm and she said, are you okay? Cause I guess she could tell by the look on my face. And I just, right. I burst into tears and like everybody in my classroom was like, oh my God, like they didn't know what was happening, but I just like Aww. couldn't stop. And then the teacher yeah. came in and was like, you can go home, like present tomorrow. It's not a big deal. Right. Um, right. Oh, I, I can't imagine that. Like you're just trying to go to class, be a student go about your life and this person still creeps in and yeah the idea that it's supposed to protect it's I mean I know there are male survivors of this sort of behavior but like yeah it was started as a way to protect women but because like when you're in that situation it is impossible to go to class you know when you're that scared or when you're that emotionally upset it's impossible to go to class and even if you can go to class the ability to focus is just out the door. It really right. impede your ability to get an education. And it is really mm-hmm. important that that's protected, right? Right. Yes. Yes. I'm really glad that you said that. Question. Do you think that two sem- a, a two-semester suspension was enough? Um, That's a good question. I don't know. Because, like, I do – it did – enough at the time you know like to be able to ensure that like he and Liz would no longer have any classes together right I think nationally they do recommend especially if it's if this person's done it more than once that they would be expelled I have no idea like what an appropriate response yeah you know because like evidence that this happened and that this person was found guilty of it is that it's on his transcripts. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that actually happens because you, you know, at this point they, they don't keep up with a lot of things that they were supposed to be keeping up with. So I actually don't know if that's actually going to happen. It's supposed yeah. to, but. And the thing is, is with that, it's like how many jobs actually ask you for your transcript unless, yeah. you know, maybe you're trying to go to, graduate school or uh, higher learning yeah yeah no because I definitely I've never been asked for my transcript right I I just have to commend you for just staying in the fight I think that's absolutely incredible and took so much courage and I just I'm just so inspired by you it was a lot of anger. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. That was what propelled me. <laughs> right. Yeah. See, when my thing was going on, it was a lot of sadness. And my friends were like, why aren't you mad? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no, there was definitely like, it is it, it, like, okay. I, I was talking about this with someone. I think actually I mentioned this to you as well, but I was talking about this with a client recently. People cope with tragedy differently. And right. for some people, like the way to cope, like, I don't cry when I'm sad. I cry when I'm angry. Yeah. Like I'm one of those types. And like, for me, this was like, this was a way to cope to be able to go into people's offices and just scream my head off and be like, (laughs) Oh, your job. And like, you know, like knock things over. Like 
for me that like it felt really it was it was very cathartic as bad as it was right. you know like and I'm sure you're walking out like I just I just told them you know you know I actually I often left angrier than when I went oh. in. You know, when you're like oh I forgot to say this or oh I could have come yes. up with this you know but it was still yes. you know I'm looking on the bright side here like it, it did in some it's a it's a tough situation to say the yeah. least, but yeah. I hope and pray that some there's some change coming out of LSU because if if this hasn't allowed them to learn like this is a problem and we're gonna deal with it, and then also now that the they have a the Department of Education is investigating it, right? Yeah. Well, the the Department of Education. Okay, first of all, like the things that LSU was doing, the way that they were like violating federal guidelines, they were doing that whether you look at Obama era guidelines or Trump era guidelines. You know? Yeah. And like whichever way you look, whichever ones were implemented at whatever time, like either way, what they were doing was wrong. Right. Um, right. So either way, the DOE, like they're going to be fined basically by the DOE for each violation. It's about $60,000 per violation. They've so far identified four, but there will probably be more. Um, And they will also have full control to tell LSU, fire this person, get rid of this person. You need to create this sort of. Nice. So they have a lot of power, which actually I feel really good about because I think that somebody not from Louisiana needs to take, like, I think it's good that someone outside of right. Louisiana community is right. making those decisions. Right. And that's the thing about Louisiana in and of itself. Like I always tell my friends in general, one thing I, I do love about Louisiana is just nobody's a stranger. And if I met a random person who was from Louisiana, I bet we know somebody who's the same person type of deal yeah and so every and at every level of any institution or business or community everyone is interconnected in Louisiana and so I do think it's going to have to take somebody from the outside and hopefully they'll say you know the board is a big problem here (laughs) so yeah that needs to go because like we were saying earlier is that John Bell Edwards isn't going to do that. Yeah. Well, also, like, you talk about, like, everybody being connected. Like, I personally, like, know a lot of the people who are, like, on both sides of this whole scandal. So, obviously, Trump and Obama are two very different presidents on every level of a lot of things. And so Title IX being one of them there were some changes that the Trump administration made to Title IX, and we're going to kind of go into a few of them. I'll kind of let you explain. We'll just go through them all. I guess the first thing is the length of the Trump policy versus Obama's famous Dear Colleague letter and how that affects the situation. Yeah, so the... Obama's was 53 pages. Mm-hmm. Trump's first Title IX policy changes was, that was 38 pages. 
But his okay. most recent, like the big overhaul, was 2,033 pages, which yeah. is not just way longer than his first one or Obama's, but also like it's longer than most even complicated right. pieces of legislation. So like for reference, the CARES Act, which talks about like very specific tax breaks for small businesses, tax write-offs in investment schemes, retirement funds, stimulus spending, all sorts of stuff. That was only 335 pages. So yeah. And for, yeah. sorry. And for, you know, just in general, like you always see, you know, these uber conservative, like Rand Paul, you know, just posting a picture on Twitter of how many pages some sort of bill is. And usually for conservatives, a lot of pages for some sort of policy is like, no, no, we don't like it. We don't want it. So it, that I thought that was interesting yeah. just from a that. Glance. Yeah. See, a lot of people and like, I don't want to like, like for disclaimer, because I don't think we've explained this yet. You and I are very politically different but yeah I, yeah yeah so I, I will <laughs> admit that I am you know I would say pretty liberal you know but right. I want to make it clear that I try to like this is title nine specifically is something I try to look at from like a nonpartisan standpoint I don't hate yeah. all of the Trump rules but I will say the length of it does rub me the wrong way because it does seem mm -hmm. to make it much more confusing and harder for Makes right. it harder for survivors to understand, but also it's actually, um, it's proven really expensive for universities, which sounds weird, but because it's so long, they've actually had, a lot of universities have to hire experts to help them with it yeah. and try and make sense of it and implement it appropriately, um, which is kind of a pain because like you kind of want the DOE just to tell you what to do, right? Right. Rather than like, you have to try and guess what they want you to do, if that makes sense. So really, I think that's my yeah. biggest issue with what the changes are. I just wish there was like a consolidated version. Yeah. And in the case of LSU, their Title IX office was already understaffed, underfunded. And so how do you expect an underfunded, understaffed office to then go and look at 2033 pages and try to figure out what's going on when they already have so yeah, much Yeah, they're already on. pretty overwhelmed. Like, you know, it takes them months to address Title IX complaints. Some of them don't ever get addressed. So, like, something like this really would, you know, further impede efforts. Right. But they did figure it out. Um, they did implement by the deadline, which was August of 2020. They implemented all of these new changes. They updated their policy. And since the Trump rules took effect. There have been, last I checked, three cases went all the way to a UHP under the new rules. Gotcha. Um, has, I haven't honestly looked up anything with Biden and Title IX. Has his administration announced anything about Title IX or, you know, their change in policies or their intention on Title IX throughout their administration? Well, so... There's been some talk about either starting having the DOE basically just review all of Trump's changes and recommending 
what are we going to keep? What are we going to add to? What are we going to tweak? Some people have said to just repeal the Trump rules because they're just so confusing. The, the being that in Title IX, it's kind of like neutral. You're neutral to both parties and the university saying neutral as it pertains to cross-examine, uh, panel hearing, stuff like that. Does it, do you think it has more of a positive impact or a negative impact in a courtroom the perpetrator is on trial, not the victim. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, it's like, for, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of seems like both people are in the same capacity, yeah. Yeah. for lack of a better word, on trial. So does that have a negative impact, the university saying neutral versus being like the prosecutor right. in a, right. a sense? Well, I think that is to me that's a good thing because you do still have the option to take the attacker to court where it will be okay. you know prosecuted yeah. like if i wanted to you know the police could give that information to prosecutors you could talk with the district mm-hmm. attorney's office and you know help build the case yada 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 where they would prosecute them they would be on trial they would be defending themselves they could go to jail you can still right. do all of that but with the t- so it's still an option but with the title nine process it is supposed to be more like a civil trial in the sense that yeah the burden of proof and standard of evidence is lower it's it is lower because yeah. there's a lot less at stake in a criminal trial the burden right. of proof is higher you know you have to be right you can only convict someone if you are sure beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it because the outcome of the trial could be jail prison you know that will ruin that has a huge effect on your life versus in a civil case or in title nine the burden of proof is lower uh either preponderance of evidence Mm -hmm. which is it's more likely than not or clear and convincing which is a little more ambiguous but they, the burden of proof is lower because the stakes are lower. You know, the worst outcome would mm-hmm. be expulsion, but more likely something like suspension. Um, and I think that that's better for this type of situation. I don't think you want the university to act as a prosecutor in this situation because they don't have the sort of resources mm-hmm. to that fairly. Right. I think it's much better if they do try and stay neutral. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Let's talk about the location changes. That was something that I have strong opinions about in that under Obama, any student could file a complaint even if the incident occurred off of campus. And then for Trump's policy, it had to be on campus or at a school-sponsored event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that is problematic, I think, because... Something like only 7% of campus of college sexual assault cases happen on campus. Um, I don't know what the statistics are for sexual assaults that happen off campus, but at an event hosted by a student organization, which that sort of situation would be covered under these rules. I don't know how much that opens up more opportunities, I suppose. And it also probably depends a lot on the campus. Like 
take with you. Yeah. First of all, that's a huge campus. Like it's physically large and encompasses a lot of space. Um, and then also, you know, the fact that there are so many students um, versus you say, yeah. take like a really small liberal arts college up in the Northeast would have a physically much smaller campus, you know, so that would make a big difference. And also the fact that LSU has so many student organizations that might help yeah. a bit, you know, in terms of like allowing people right. to file. But I do think, I personally think that you should, the rules should be amended so that you could, any student can file a complaint against any other student, regardless of where it happened. And for LSU, especially in, in your situation specifically, yours happened because uh, at technically a school sponsored event because it was sponsored by a fraternity and Greek life is also huge mm -hmm. at LSU, but then at CU Boulder, the fraternities aren't affiliated with the school, but the sororities are. And so I could, you know, I've heard stories of stuff happening at frat houses mm -hmm. at CU Boulder. And so that wouldn't in, in under Trump's policies that wouldn't go to title nine. But I do remember like, right when I first retained my lawyer in my case, I remember her saying, I don't think Title IX will reach out to you unless this person reports it to them. But sometimes they go through, you know, the arrest dockets and stuff like that. And she was like, don't be surprised if they do. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, and obviously my event didn't happen on campus yeah. or at a school. Yeah, I do thing. know that like at LSU, um, even before these new rules took effect, any police reports filed by LSUPD. So, you know, they would be writing reports okay. on incidents that happened within LSU's, you know, geography, like within the boundaries. Um, yeah. There are people at LSU who every morning they go to the fax machine and they pick up all the police reports and they go through it. And if they see anything like sexual or domestic violence, they immediately would send that over to mm -hmm. Title IX, um, which is good. But yeah. also, like we were saying, like yeah, we were no, saying, though, absolutely. it is kind of limiting. You know, right? It's very limiting because I lived on. I lived in a dorm my freshman year and that was it. And really the only school sponsored events that I went to were, were like either talks or events that the, I was president of uh, the conservative club at CU Boulder. And so it was events that I was putting on all of my other time was not spent on campus or not spent at a school sponsored event. And most of the time when you, like you're you're probably at a bar or you're at someone's house or you're at a party and those are not have any affiliation with the school and so I think that that's controversial because it it, it does limit it and for a lot of women coming forward as hard as it is and sometimes you may not want your abuser to get arrested or have the legal problems but you want some accountability in that and I feel like title nine yeah. is a good outlet for that in that sense of not legal accountability yeah no something. I'm I totally agree not because I think you should ever you know I think if any woman ever wanted legal accountability 
that is obviously her right. But I personally also felt like this could be better handled by not going to prison. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that something... I'm, I mean, personally, I'm more about restorative justice in general, which is like, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't want too. it for me again, this is me personally. I don't want to say that like other victims shouldn't yeah. seek, you know, whatever it is that they feel that they're entitled to. But personally, I just want something that a make sure that I'm safe and protected and B, make sure that yes. the respondent doesn't do it again. And ruining yes. their life doesn't ensure yes. that they're not going to do it again. It might actually make things harder for them. You know? like, right, right. Because if you're outcast from society, you know, you, you have, you know, you don't have a reason to change because you feel, oh, nobody yeah. believes in me in the first place. Yeah, so, so I much I prefer this system because I think that it does... Mm-hmm. you know, when it works well, it does protect women. And also, you know, with things like, yeah, like, you know, the original disciplinary measures recommended in my case, one of them being anger management, that was like, that was stupid. However, yeah. I was a big, I was in favor of, and I think they did include this in the final outcomes recommended by the UHP, the hearing panel was um, having to go to therapy on it having to go to therapy mm-hmm. and show that they had made progress you know and like that might sound stupid to some people it might right. sound like you can't reform that sort of person but for me that seems like a good thing because like as an optimist I think that that has the potential to maybe actually do something right right and the thing is just uh, in a more blanketed sense of usually when and this is in no way, shape, or form to excuse that behavior at all. But usually people who do bad things do it because they have untapped trauma or they didn't learn or weren't raised properly or it could have happened to them themselves. And there's a lot of underlying mm-hmm. things that they aren't dealing with. And so perhaps therapy could tap into that and do more yeah yeah no and I agree with you and again like I know that what we're saying like because I've said this before and people sometimes really hate it because like a lot of people's initial reaction and I get it is like oh you know burn them at the stake um but like yeah and again if you're a survivor and that's how you feel like that's how you feel and I'm not yeah and I'm not invalidating that at all it's just that personally, and I know that you, this is the case for you too. It's more about like, this is what comforts us and we deserve to have whatever it is that comforts yes. us. Yes. Right. 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 Cause literally with my thing is my abuser wasn't held accountable with the courts and my lawyer suggested a civil claims. And I was like, you know what, at this point in time, I have to move forward and this is doing nothing to help me. It's really just keeping me in the same, just dealing with it. And I'm just done with it. I want to move forward and whatever. So another difference of the Obama Trump stuff was the definition and 
how Trump's definition of sexual harassment referred to a former case, Davis v. Monroe County Board of Education, and, and his was, you know, it narrowed it down to something that's severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. Obama's pretty much left it up to the school. What do you think about that whole, the So that's stuff? tough for me to answer because I have a lot of trouble talking about sexual harassment specifically because it's something that I've never experienced mm-hmm. You know, I find it, mm-hmm. and I think it's because, right. you know, as a survivor of sexual assault, I'm used to hearing people who haven't experienced it say things that are incorrect or tone deaf, and I don't want to contribute yeah. to that at all for sexual harassment. Um, right. I, so <laughs> it is tough to talk, so basically... Yeah, like you said, Obama's definition was more broad and left the definition of sexual harassment open to the schools. I can see how that can be a problem going both ways. You know, a school could maybe narrow the definition too much or they could leave it way too open. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I will say I agree with severe and pervasive. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I was, yeah, I kind of am on the same track of you of like the objectively offensive because it's like, for me, I'm like huge free speech person. And so something that is object and how do you measure that something offensive being objectively offensive? Because you could say something to me and I don't think it's offensive, but to one person, to another person, it could be extreme, extremely offensive. And so who, who decides the objectively offensive yeah, I mean, portion in, of that? In fairness, so that definition, like you said, it came from a Supreme Court case, Davis v. Monroe County. The opinion was written by Sandra Day O'Connor, Reagan appointee. Excellent yes. opinion of my unprofessional opinion yeah and it set up it basically set up what we now know as this whole title IX complaint process like the resolution process and Mm -hmm. as much as I like the whole opinion the little bit objectively offensive again and it's it's not just with this supreme court case this is pops up in a lot of other cases the idea that something can be objectively offensive is so hard to define. And, you know, right. as you said, being, you know, pro First Amendment and me too, there's so many court cases about things that they're saying, oh, well, you know, what's objectively, um, what was what was the one case where someone said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Obscenity, that was it. The Supreme Court was trying to define obscenity and what can be, what sort of language is obscene and shouldn't be used, what shouldn't be copyrighted, I think was the issue. Um, And it's so weird the way that they ended up setting up this whole system of like what is objectively obscene because then like something like, yeah, the F word isn't, but 
like if you like flip the F upside, there's like all these weird loopholes. I'm not going to go into it because I'm not a pro, but basically yeah. like, that sort of system, right. it's already pretty questionable when you apply it to like copyrights and what can be copyrighted. And it seems definitely yeah. questionable when you start applying it to something very serious, like sexual harassment. So I, right. I, yeah, I agree with you. Get rid of and, objectively and- offensive because like that's objectively you can't yeah. define objectively offensive because offensive is subjective, right? Right, right, right. And in Kennedy's dissent, he kind of goes into that and says, who defines these terms? And so he kind of used that against the opinion saying, well, if the language is severe, pervasive and objectively offensive, who defines them yeah. and what do we define them yeah. as? In that case, just more broadly, Sandra Day O'Connor focuses way more on the Title IX aspect of it as it refers to the federal government. And Kennedy kind of hones in on, well, this is just a federalism thing. The courts have no business being in a you know county education board. And I know previously you and I were kind of going back on Sandra Day O'Connor was the first female Supreme Court justice. She was a Reagan appointee, obviously a very conservative justice. And so it begs the question of what made her come down on this decision. And then also she, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court during that time. So I wonder, you know, like what happened or what could have happened to Sandra Day O'Connor that made her come out on this because if you think of a conservative judge they would focus more on federalism and so why did she part ways from you know the conservative yeah. side yeah and like things? not i mean when you consider the fact that she was the first woman appointed to the supreme court ginsburg was the second and when she right. when yeah when sandra day o'connor and when ginsburg were in law school they were one of like a few women in their classes I don't really think she has talked much about it because I feel like with RBG, she was this feminist icon of a judge. And that wasn't really Sandra Day O'Connor's like defining Mm -hmm. characteristic, if you will. And so I don't think she talks about it, but obviously obviously she, yeah. Well, and obviously Sandra Day O'Connor, even if she doesn't announce it, things like this ruling show that it was yeah. in her, you know, like she, even if she didn't yeah. experience any sort of discrimination as one of the first women in law school, which I highly doubt, I'm sure she was discriminated against, but right. Right. yeah, law and school today is still a very school. gendered yeah. profession. Um, mm-hmm. Won't go into that, but mm-hmm. um, the, The fact that she made that decision, even if she wasn't discriminated against, which, again, I highly doubt, she was definitely aware of it, you know, or she wouldn't have ruled that way. And also something that strikes me is Kennedy's dissent. It has its merits. I see what he's saying. Um, Like you said, it's definitely in line with conservative judicial beliefs. But that's an important you know, there's an important sticky note there, which is that being a woman, whether you're conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. Being a woman Mm -hmm. changes your perspective on situations. 
And it's important. It's important that oh, we have absolutely that the having Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor on the court gave us those perspectives. But also another thing that strikes me now that and I haven't thought about this before, but you just made me think about it, which is like because Sandra Day O'Connor's a woman, to her, objectively offensive, she probably thinks, oh, that's something like that we all agree on. But she, I think she overestimates her male colleagues, yeah. <laughs> you know, like she thinks like, oh, right. That's yeah. That's like to her, there are things that are either. objectively offensive. And to you and me, there are. But to you and me, we know by talking to men that we know, like, no, sometimes they excuse things that shouldn't be excused. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, 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 that's a really good, some that's, yeah. I like, like you pointed that out. And especially back, this case was in 1999. And so I feel like since we've been alive, even when we were younger and even now still, it's still, uh, you know, the just sexual innuendos and just the comments and, you know, stuff like that is back then, like today, men still don't understand why some things could be objectively offensive to a woman. And so 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. 20 years ago. Imagine. Oh my God. If I was alive back then, like (laughs) I would not have done well for a lot of reasons. Right. Right. And then also like another added thing is like you and I were born and raised in the very Catholic deep red South. And so there was that kind of idea of like, you know, you're a mom, you're a care, you know, you're the house giver, you tend to the children. And in Colorado, it's not necessarily like that. And so we were kind of raised way differently in like the aspect of how women are, you know, raised up. But I will say, I would argue our all girls high school did a good job of empowering us. Oh yeah. I don't know about how you feel about that. To this day, I hate when I see people like, don't get me wrong. Like everything deserves to be criticized. And there are things you criticize about our high school, but I hate when people are just like, Oh, that place was terrible. Like, no, it wasn't. You had one of yes. the best educations available yeah. to you. Ungrateful child. Like Right. <laughs> right. And as a as a woman and uh, you know, I, I've taken some feminist classes and I've talked about going to an all-girls high school and it being Catholic at that and how it empowered me because when you're learning with men in the classroom, there are girls who focus about what they look like and get nervous to raise their hands because, oh, what is this guy going to think about me? And I felt like our high school, our high school did a very good job of saying, no, you're an educated woman and your education from this high school is going to, you know, wi- reach for the stars because if yeah. you dream it, and also, you can like, do it. My sophomore year at SJA, I took um, I took AP psychology with Dr. Grobman, who was fascinating and awesome. But he, there was, we were talking about mm-hmm. um, gender differences at some point, and how 
a lot of things that we perceive as a difference in ability between the genders is actually just a self-fulfilling prophecy of if you tell people, like if you tell women, oh, your women aren't good, aren't naturally as good at this as men, then they start to convince themselves that they are. And he said something, he started talking about studies into women's um, math abilities compared to men's. And he said like, oh, well, you know, there's like women actually perform exactly the same in math as men when they're given the same opportunities to fight the stereotype that women yeah. aren't as good at math. And everyone in the class was like, wait, what? And he was like, you right. know, that old stereotype. And we were like, no. And he laughed and was like, oh my God, I'm so happy that the school has adequately protected you from like that sort of limiting notion. You know, like we totally, like there were so many yeah. things we were just totally sheltered from. Like everything was open to us. Math was huge at SJ. Oh, yeah. Not that I was really that good at it, but like, you know, like we did have all these opportunities. <laughs> Not me either. Yeah. And like them having a STEM lab and our computer lab being headed by all women and just there was, you know, I, there was so much focus on the sciences for us at our high school. And I'm super appreciative of that. And like, for instance, somebody who graduated from our high school is yeah. going to be on the SpaceX yeah. flight. Like that is insane. Um, so I, I'm appreciative of that. I'm, I'm glad you feel the same way. And so I guess with that, we can kind of shift from the title, unless you have anything else to add about the Title IX and the sort of Obama-Trump stuff, we can kind of go into yeah. the culture stuff, the Me Too, the Believe All Women. And, you know, obviously Me Too has been heavily criticized by conservatives. And I will admit, I you know, got into politics, obviously, the more you educate yourself, the more nuanced you are on a topic. And for me, as a conservative woman, I was like, Oh, this is just beating down men like this is just, I don't really understand this whole me too stuff. And I was kind of like, felt like I needed to fit into that, like, Oh, all the conservatives are saying this about me too. So I need to say it. And Ali Raisman, who was a you U.S. gymnast and was also a victim of Larry Nasser. she was speaking at CU Boulder's campus and I had asked one of my friends who is like a raging feminist to come to the talk with me and she was just talking about the importance of Me Too and what it really means and how it's you know it, it empowers women and it's just kind of like a, a sisterhood if you will of this is what women are you know women are going through this and the whole me too movement is is to say hey this is a real thing and we have to change it and i remember walking out of the talk and i just looked at my friend and i was like i was so ignorant and i'm so glad that i went to that talk because it it's not a political thing it's a culture thing and so i didn't need to align with one side yes i have my qualms with certain things that you know, separate women do and how they approach the Me Too thing. But I think it's more of a good in the sense of shedding light on a situation yeah. than it yeah, is Yeah, no, overall, bad. Me Too 
shouldn't like you it shouldn't be political because just because right. you're one political ideology doesn't mean that you're spared from all domestic and sexual violence or harassment or anything um and also right. a lot of times that people are saying me too they're not even naming someone but just to see on social media just to see people saying you know you know if you see a tweet from someone you know and there's no details but it says okay yeah hashtag me too you don't know any details but it is nice to see mm-hmm. like oh this person you know like when you told me your story it was nice to see like okay ashley's yeah. a strong competent woman who had the same thing happen to her because you know as, as a survivor i think like why was I yeah. so stupid? How could I have done that? Yeah. And so Tarana Burke, who started the Me Too movement back in like 2006, she had initially started it for black and brown young girls. And it came from a conversation she was having with a young girl kind of explaining her sexual assault experience. And Tarana Burke said, Me Too. And from there it started. But Me Too didn't really make waves in our current cultural society until really Alyssa Milano, who was a victim of Harvey Weinstein, she tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. And it just broke the internet because of how many women were coming forward and talking about it. And like, even in, you know, like you were saying, I came to you and, and also I want to add, like, I, looked at you as somebody of, oh my gosh, she just came out and like said her story, put her name out there. I was so inspired. And I was like, I don't understand how you could do that because doing that for me scared, like it scared me. And like really my episode last week on sharing my story probably wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have reached out to you. So thank you for that. But even now, like there's so many of my friends or like even one of my friend's moms told us about a situation and it's just like it happened. Yeah. And I remember when that initial me too, like when, like you said, it broke the internet. I remember one of my friends like coming into my room and she shut the door behind her and she was like, like she looked pretty scared and she was like, you know, are you seeing all this? And I was like, yeah. Cause I, I was thinking at the time, like, how badly I wanted to, you know, say me too, you know, but I wasn't ready yet. I was scared. And um, she said, yeah. are you seeing all this? And I said, yeah, like, this is crazy. Like so many people we know are talking about it. And she was like, yeah, my mom just texted us and mm-hmm. said that that happened, you know, that like when she was younger, she was abused um, like as a child. And like her mom had never said anything, but her wow. mom said specifically I feel like I've always been scared to say it, but seeing all these other people, I feel like I can say mm-hmm. it now. So like, it does have an impact. It It's amazing. The importance is still there just as it is for right. any other sexual abuse. Like I've seen that with a few people that I know where just recently they've realized yeah, what yeah. happened and, to like, them and now they're dealing with it. Like I said, it's just, and it's the same with, sexual assault when you're an adult and domestic violence it processing it usually comes later because yeah. basically your brain 
knows your brain. Yes. Just keeping you alive. Like that's your brain job on a day-to-day basis. So when the wounds are fresh, your brain is just trying to keep you going. Right. And as you heal over time, you know, as you cope with it in your own way, quietly. Yeah. Eventually your brain will be able to start processing it. You know, when you feel like you're safe. So it, it, it makes sense that it takes people so long to come forward. Like your brain doesn't allow you to process these things any Mm -hmm. sooner than when you're ready. And so a big critique of the me too movement is that it's gone too far that it's turned into a situation of believe all women and that it's, you know, destroying men. We're not allowing due process to come in. And that's a big thing that a lot of conservatives have an issue with is they feel as though there's a lack of due process with the whole situation, you know, with, Christine Blasey Ford, I would say most notably against her allegations with Brett Kavanaugh, is that if you didn't believe her, then you weren't an ally of of women and that you were anti-women. And instead, a lot of them were just like, I want to figure out the facts of the situation before I just blindly believe this this woman. I'm so glad you brought it up because like, I've been dying to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, the way, yeah. So, I mean, the way that I saw the situation, like personally hearing Christine Blasey Ford and the way that she was talking and the things that she said and comparing that with the things that he was saying, I personally do believe Christine Blasey Ford. However, I also understand Mm -hmm. that you can't, you know, it, it would be hard as a political representative to say, oh, I believe her by the way that she was talking. You know, that's not, that's just my gut feeling. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but I do think, and right. I really hate that this was totally washed over in that whole saga because that was really an important, we could have, we had the opportunity there to address a huge you know, thing there, thing for lack of a better word, but the way Mm -hmm. we should have addressed that situation was not to say, you know, Christine, shut up, (laughs) quit lying, go home. Don't even think about coming in and talking. Um, And we shouldn't have said like, Christine, don't even worry about it. We believe you don't say anything else. You know, you're good. Both of those are wrong, you know, like mm-hmm. you have to hear you have to hear the evidence. And then second, yeah, after she spoke, he spoke, the FBI investigated. Um, the FBI basically said we can't say one way or the other, like there's just not enough evidence. After that, that would have been a good time for everybody yeah. to learn the lesson that you can say, Hey, Christine, I'm not saying you're a liar, and I'm very sorry but we just don't have enough evidence. So we can't just take you at your word. You know, I, there were, there were people that were saying like, Oh, there's no evidence. You're lying. Whereas we could have just said like, sorry, there's no evidence, but like, we hear you. And that doesn't mean that you can confirm Brett Kavanaugh. Does that make sense? Like, yes, yes. I think that does make sense because 
in a situation like this, you are nominating somebody to be a Supreme Court justice. This is this will be his high, the highest honor of his life. And as a judge or a lawyer or a law Mm -hmm. professor in any aspect, that is the dream. And so how could you take that away by just somebody saying something? And because, you know, because the FBI said there wasn't enough evidence. And then I think with Christine, Blasey Ford is for me, I just felt like, right, there wasn't enough evidence of the, you know, the simple, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, when, where, why, because it was so long ago. And then you have Brett Kavanaugh coming in very strong with, I kept a calendar when I was younger, and this is what I was doing. And the this is what, you know, my friends are corroborating my story. And, you know, Christine Blasey Ford, one of her friends said this never happened. And so it just, it became a spectacle. And for me, I felt like it was political in the sense of Diane Feinstein had the information far before it all came forward. And so it was like, was Diane Feinstein using it as like, okay, this yeah. is how we're going to get him. And, this is how no you know, yeah I first of all yeah, I don't know <laughs> cannot stand Feinstein like as a liberal she makes my blood boil <laughs> like so I wouldn't be like if, I didn't even know what you just said but like I like if she was sitting on those allegations for that long that's awful not just because like, she used it as a political advantage but the fact that yeah. she like didn't do anything sooner where she yes. like let's say you know if there know. were credible allegations like you know firm ones would she have hidden those too like that's I had no that's horrible but not surprised because like I can't yeah. her. if she if uh, my thing with Feinstein is that if she would have like if she because throughout the whole thing she was like you know I care about women you know sexual assault shouldn't be allowed and it's like if you cared about women yeah why didn't this come out sooner you know why did you sit on it and so that I think that was a big critique around the whole thing is that if you yeah. had if you had this letter why didn't you do something sooner and then I don't know I just that was like very interesting and I remember reaching out to some of some women that are conservatives and a few of them literally said, I mean, I'm sure he did it, but I still want him confirmed. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting that you believe that he did it, but you still think he should get confirmed. And I don't know if that kind of goes into this idea that it's just like, Oh, it's, you know, Men get to powerful places, even if it is well known and yeah, well, I think that they like, abuse women. I mean, I my reasons for thinking he shouldn't be confirmed actually don't have anything to do with the allegations. Just because, um, like I was saying, my oh, instinct yeah. told me that I believed her, right? Um, but like I was saying. I, you can't, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't go off of instinct. Like you would have to have proof. And 
I understand why people would have to say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, Dr. Ford, but, and so I think that might've been a motivating factor for conservative women who said, okay, they're like me. They had that gut feeling, but they know that you can't just go off of a gut feeling, but also the, Mm -hmm. for me, like, so it had nothing to do with her allegations. Uh, well, not nothing, but, and it, his, his jurisprudence so far actually hasn't been as conservative as everyone was expecting. Right. Yeah. He's, he's actually. Yeah. Sided which is interesting. Isn't it? <laughs> some. And, and that, yeah, right. It's very interesting. And like, I always go back to like Scalia's quote of a good judge is a good judge yeah. isn't satisfied with all of their rulings. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I don't know, but I think a lot of people thought that Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett specifically were going to be a lot more conservative than they are. And yeah. so, yeah, that's but obviously no, my issue for a conversation wasn't, for another time. Like my issue with him not so much even political because even though I do disagree with him, like I do respect his process, you know, like when anytime a judge does Mm -hmm. something unexpected, I respect that because it's like, okay, you clearly have a brain that you use. Right. Yeah. But really my only, my only issue with Kavanaugh, like the only reason I, if I was a politician, I wouldn't have confirmed him was his demeanor. Um, yeah, but at the same time, like, yeah. again, that's that was, something that, that matters to me. It doesn't matter to everyone, you know, and, like, I have to I- accept that. And, right. you know, he's on the court now. But, but like, I still, I know one yeah. of the biggest conservative criticisms that I heard a lot around the time of the whole situation was, you know, oh, she's ruining his life with this allegation. And that's something you hear a lot when women make allegations um, oh, they're just ruining his life yeah. on these baseless allegations. Yeah. Um, to that, I would say, first of all, I think every survivor mm-hmm. has a right to make allegations. And as I was saying before, whether or not you believe them, that's your right. But, you know, please be respectful, obviously. But also, mm-hmm. um, you know, allegations, more often than not, they actually don't ruin lives. <laughs> you know, like in this case, it did. Yeah. It was stressful for him and his family, right? right. Um, it didn't ruin his life. He was still in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. It, you know, at Fox News, you know, Roger Ailes yeah. and Bill O'Reilly with their accusations and people were saying, oh, now their lives are ruined. Well, their careers are temporarily over. Well, you know, Ailes has since died. But like, first of all, there's no guarantee that Bill O'Reilly's never coming back. And second, they got- Bill O'Reilly still, I mean, I follow him on Twitter just to kind of see what he's up to. There. And he he has his own. Yeah. He, has a, he own, also his got a huge payout through Fox News. From Fox News. So like, this idea that it ruins men's lives, I strongly mm-hmm. could test right. that. Because, like, more often than not, nothing happens. Yeah. And if something does happen, like, it's not the worst thing in the world that could be happening. You know, like, firing Bill O'Reilly Yeah, I look at it the same way I look at Title IX things, which is like, it was just restorative justice. You just took him out of the situation to help protect other women at the network. 
and his life wasn't ruined. Mm-hmm. It changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he still got all that money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. See, I kind of sort of disagree with you there on uh, allegations sometimes do have weight. And yes, some people aren't held accountable, but sometimes people are held accountable for something they didn't commit. And sometimes those allegations do end up ruining somebody who didn't necessarily do the crime as alleged. And so, yeah, no, you definitely, you have to put everything into the balance, right? That's that's where I have issue. Every allegation is different and you have to look at everyone differently. Like you can't approach them all the same way. Um, The rules aren't finite and that is confusing. And I think that's one reason it gets so much critique. Like it can be hard, especially for people with very concrete, you know, set ways of thinking who like everything to be black and white. That is very frustrating. And I get that. Like, I do respect that. Um, Take Andrew Cuomo. (laughs) Right. I was just, I was just about to mention Cuomo. It's like, I felt like with Cuomo, the kind of three weeks of from Lindsay Boland coming forward. And then now we have nine women coming forward. Now there are, are current staffers and aides who came forward and During those weeks, I was like, you know what? Maybe something will give. And then I'm like, no, he, nothing is going to take him down except for an election. And he's not really held accountable for any, I mean, pretty much a lot of people hate him, but is he really? Yeah. No, no, it's not. It's another case of life going on in LSU, you know, in Louisiana, New York's very similar where everyone's related, you know, he's in one of those powerful interconnected families where everyone's. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, again, there's no formula to whether or not you have to believe or not believe allegations against somebody. So like rules are different always, but I will say like, this is one case where I was like, okay, there's no way this many women formed this conspiracy especially when you consider like the women who would be working for him would be Democrats. This isn't some political conspiracy to undermine a party or a political representative. It's like a clear case of like, it took these women everything to stand up against such a powerful man. Like they would not have made that decision lightly. Mm -hmm. And all of those women, I will say came with receipts. And I think that was super important. And then, some people like tweet Lindsay Bolin on Twitter and say, oh, this is just a Republican's conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I am a hardcore liberal. No Republican even talked to me about this. Like, yeah. This is not a Republican conspiracy to take down Andrew Cuomo. It's me sharing what, ha- what Andrew Cuomo did to me. And I don't think he'll be held accountable. And also I think the journalists haven't held him accountable and obviously there's kind of a conflict of interest there with his brother being a huge reporter from cnn and so it just complicates the situation i don't know if he'll i don't know if he'll be taken down but then like another situation is joe biden and tara reed and i you know i follow tara reed on twitter and she's just like 
why why has nobody like it's it's really sad almost like she's just like why has nobody even tried to look into my allegations and and it's really sad because she's like well now this man is the president of the United States and then you know same thing with a lot of women came forward about Donald Trump it's and the same story over and over again and it's you just, know um, it's crazy but I think, I mean, first of all, the way that like both parties treat women who make allegations against people in their own party, both sides, both sides do it. Both sides want to pretend that they don't, but they do. Um, Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I try my very hardest sometimes. I know. I'm like, I got it like with the Matt Gates stuff coming out. I don't know if you've seen any of that. But I'm like, at first when it came, like when it initially came out, I was like, this just seems very weird. I don't know what to think about this. And then like more was coming out and I'm like, okay, this is really weird. Well, and also because it's not allegations. It's like there's an ongoing investigation. Um, But also that means that you have the right to wait until the investigation's over. Like, you know, you don't have to make an opinion now because you don't have all the facts. But it. Like right, it is right. easier <laughs> to believe someone when you already really don't like the person, you know, like for me, like I already really didn't like Andrew Cuomo, right. <laughs> you know, but like, but I mean, in all seriousness, I do actually like, aside from the fact that I don't like yeah. him, I really do think that like those allegations were very credible. Um, but yeah, no, it's so complicated. Um, I, and if I could just, and I know it's a lot to ask and this will never happen, but like if everyone could just stop politicizing the issue, that would be great. It's not going to happen. But that's why I think all of this leads to yeah. the fact that, you know, the core of the Me Too movement is so important because if we can address these things early before these men get as far in their careers mm-hmm. as they do, then it will be a non-issue later, you know, like. And I understand that women who made these allegations against Biden and Trump right. and Bill Clinton, yeah. they, those incidents, you know, alleged incidents, I should say, would have occurred at a time when they, those women would not have been encouraged to come forward. So it makes sense that they're coming forward now. But like, we need to change, like, this is the opportunity now to change things right. so that women yeah. come forward know sooner and before things go as far as they do and then hopefully one day we just won't have this issue like people will have this greater awareness right. of the issue um men will have a greater awareness yeah. of it and you know respect women more you know does that make sense like if if men growing up today i think yeah have a much better understanding right. of how to treat women and talk to women than men 50 years ago did and I actually had found a clip of Tarana Burke on the daily show with Trevor Noah. And she said that the me too movement has really nothing to do about taking down powerful men or men in general. She said that it's about supporting survivors and that she wanted to make sure that that didn't get lost. Yeah. Yeah, No, and that really is it. Like that's it. Of it all. And so also, I wonder because stuff with like, say Larry Nasser is that I feel like when the Larry Nasser stuff came out about him sexually assaulting dozens of gymnasts, 
I feel like pretty much everyone collectively believed that. And obviously the allegations were extremely credible. And just the fact that so many women had the same story, but also Larry Nassar wasn't a political figure. So I wonder if that really had anything to do with that. And for instance, like at Fox News with Roger Ailes, like when Gretchen Carlson came out, everyone was like, oh my God, what is this woman doing? She's just mad because she pretty much lost her job. And now it's kind of like everyone, like not everyone, but a lot of conservatives look at Roger Ailes in a bad way where previously they may have not. Like Trump still (laughs) tweets about Roger Ailes sometimes, which I think is really weird. But yeah, that was more that was different. And then like stuff with R. Kelly, like a lot of people believe that. And like Harvey Weinstein, I think that was different because obviously Hollywood in and of itself is this big power structure. Yeah. And so there yeah. was a and so that is the, there, like that's such that's a good point. That like that's a promising start. Like it. it's kind of like politics is the last hurdle for the movement. You know, like the depoliticizing the issue would be the last hurdle because it does seem like yeah in 2021 yeah that women are believed generally. The only time that they're not and the only time that they're really challenged um is when it's political. And even then sometimes they're not. Like they're, you know, it's different. But like hearing right. like people that I know, like older women talk about their own experiences and just the way that they were treated 20 years ago by making an allegation against someone of no consequence and the mm-hmm. way that their sister or their aunt was like, you drama queen, right. calm down. You know, whereas today I, I people definitely do respect yeah. it a lot more today. Like they have a yeah. greater understanding of it. Yeah. Right. And I think today also like with our generation, if somebody that I know or a friend of mine came forward to me, I have no reason not to believe them because I know who they are. And I know that they wouldn't lie about something that's so severe. And so I have no, like I of course believe blindly believe my friends because I have no reason to think that they're lying. And also this is just something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, being in another country, like currently living in Ireland, and the way that here it's addressed is yeah. so different. So, so different because they basically already had their Me Too movement in the yeah. 90s. They're so mm-hmm. much, their approach to the issue is so much more well guided than ours. And like, that's not to say like, I hate America or like, I think we'll never get there. But like we're just yeah. in the infancy. Like it's a prom it's promising for me to see like right. where they are now, 20 years after they basically had what I would call their Me Too movement, is mm-hmm. people, men and women, yeah. are so much more comfortable talking about these issues. Like like I yeah. can't off the top of my Very head name so. a grown man from home that I know who would talk about his experience with sexual abuse openly and here it's so much more normal which is good because it gives people the comfort to come forward so like for me that means that looks like to me that in 20 years that will be us in america like we'll be at the stage that they are 
Yeah. And I think also just the way that even we were raised is I feel like when we had sex ed in middle school, we talked about sex, but we never talked about being potentially violated. And, you know, they obviously separated us like girls and boys and we didn't talk about it until high school, which we didn't have boys in our classroom in high school. And so it's like, did, did they ever, you know, say you cannot, you know, and, and maybe that's something that should be left up to the parents. I could understand that, but also I think there needs to be a greater conversation with young boys of this is the way that you treat a woman. And if you do, if you violate a woman, there are severe consequences. And like, even me, like, I feel like when I was younger, I, I can only think, and obviously like when I was younger, my memory, I don't have it fully, but I do remember one occasion where my mom was like, like nobody is allowed to violate you. Yeah. And like, and, this, and if somebody does, I think then what you just mentioned okay. would be a lot harder for us to pull off, at least like where we are currently, like as a country. But I think it is a conversation worth having in schools, which is hard right. in some states where sex ed is like already optional. And also there's a lot of laws like in Louisiana about sex ed and what can be taught and what can't be taught. You know, like it's abstinence only, so you don't learn about contraceptives or anything in public schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was yeah. So right, um, yeah, and we were in Catholic but school, so I would be a huge supporter of some where like some sort of education where you have those conversations in a classroom setting. And I know that you know American culture, the way that we are. We like to leave these things with the parents, you know, like parents like having that control over that mm-hmm. part of their child's education. But I think this is just too yes. important to leave yeah. to the parents, you know, like my, in my family, um, you know, I have a little brother mm-hmm. and um, when I, at some point when I was in college, he was still in high school. Someone that we know, like people, like we knew their family, um, one of their sons who was my age was arrested and convicted of rape. Um, And it was a huge deal at the time. And my parents were like flabbergasted, you know, because they knew this kid, they watched him grow up. Um, But then my parents were like, had that realization of like, wait, nobody's talked to the kids about this sort of stuff. Um, So they sat my brother down and had that conversation with him, yeah. you know, about like consent and things like that. But yeah, but then my mom said that my brother at one point, like, Good like, like stood up, like flabbergasted and was like, wait, I know not to rape people. And they were like, they were like, okay, calm down. We're talking about like consent, like not, you know, obviously <laughs> you don't like just attack a woman, but they were saying like, you know, they were trying to go yeah. a little bit further and say like, you know, like it's enthus- it's an enthusiastic yes. And it can be revoked at any time. You know, like that whole conversation. That's much more nuanced. Like, obviously, every most people know it's wrong to, like, attack a random woman on the street. Right. But, like, the conversation needs to be about, like, the more nuanced bits. Right. And that's a conversation. That's not, like, there's no rule book. Right. That's something that needs to be instilled in everyone's head that you are not to, you, you know, you are not to touch 
a woman inappropriately or suggest like anything inappropriate towards a woman sexually because there is that gray area of what is and isn't consent and you know when alcohol is involved and how that whole thing works and I think that's also just one thing of like the believe all women and the me too is I feel like sometimes it's made men kind of contract in a way of like oh my gosh like if I take you know if I take this girl home and she's drunk but you know she said yes and how does that get blurred and granted like if men have to worry about that then that's okay and if they have it in their head then that's good also I think as it pertains to men is because and this is not to say they don't deal with it or go through it or are survivors of it but I think for a lot of men, they don't understand why a woman would wait or why a woman would never come forward. Or, you know, I think sometimes they don't like, they don't get it in their head of like, like, why wouldn't you just like say it? Like, you know, and I'm, I was having this conversation the other day with someone and I was like, it's not it's so nuanced. Like it's, it like, it's so much easier said than done to just come out and say it because usually it's very layered and nuanced. And so it's, it's scary to just come out and have this big allegation and, you know, are you going to be believed? Are people just going to completely write you off? And, and how, you know, what is, when I come forward, how is that going to look for me or what's going to, you know, how's that, it's a scary unknown thing for everyone. And I think a lot of times within the conversation of sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic violence, a lot of men who aren't perpetrators of it sometimes just are simply ignorant and don't understand it. And so I think having those conversations, you know, as a woman to your, your male family members, your male friends, and how, yeah, yeah, no, sexism, racism, and all the topics in those areas and in the overlap and everything are things that require conversations. Because, um, like I've been saying, like, there is no rule book. No, no situation is the same. Things are nuanced. And, um, it just, you just have to keep having those conversations and they can sometimes be uncomfortable, but they don't have to be like, it's just, and we'll get better at it the more that we do it. Um, But it is, it is a conversation. Like um, we're having it now. Um, I have it with my, like my male friends who I would say, like, of course I would think so. Like, I think that they're very respectful towards women. They will even reach out to me and ask questions. Yeah, I think that like understanding barrier is something that could definitely be changed and just figuring out how to move forward. Obviously, the best way to start is having conversations with men in your life about how women feel when they're going through these things. And, you know, it's not, I think, just to kind of tie it back to politics, it's not one ideology. It's not It's not one sort of guy. It's not just frat guys. It's not just, (laughs) 
liberal guys. It's not just conservative guys. It's not just, you know, outdoorsy men. It's, 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 you know, every single type of man has been a perpetrator of this and there's no box of who a perpetrator could be. And so having those conversations and, you know, talking it out with people and letting them figuring out, you know, what's okay and what's not okay. And them listening um, and also just surrounding yourself with good men. And I, I think that's another thing with the whole like idea of like take down the patriarchy and like obviously a patriarchal society isn't good and you want women to be seen as equal they're very much a part of it they're a necessary part of it like yes we can't have feminism without men yes and like raising right right raising your sons that the issue here is toxic masculinity and toxic masculinity shouldn't be confused with masculinity because a true masculine male is a respectful male who treats women as their equals and doesn't violate them and is a strong, you know, supporter of women and empowers women and vice versa. But I think that's a a difference too, is like, we need more. Toxic masculinity is supposed to like degrade and offend masculinity. But like, I personally, like I'm, I would describe myself as very feminine and possibly even like traditionally feminine. Um, I'm love to cook. I cook all the meals in our house. I do most of the cleaning, um, things like that. But also like, I don't think like women, it's because I'm a woman, I have to do these things, you know? And like, I'm in a relationship with like the most stereotypical masculine man ever. Like, he's a plumber. <laughs> he's got a beard. He likes to do woodwork, you know, like he's so, yeah. but he also like, <laughs> neither of us believe in this, like, you know, right. Being mass. Like if you associate toxic masculinity with masculinity, like that's your problem. Like, cause masculinity is not toxic. You know, like masculinity is a good thing and women can be yeah. masculine and that's still a good thing. Like masculinity is just good femininity is just good and respecting women is like the hottest thing a man can do right (laughs) right (laughs) exactly we're like it's so it's so you know my brother obviously he's from the south he was raised to be you know that respectful southern man and when he comes to visit with my friends they're like (laughs) oh my gosh, like I was like, your brother was sitting and like, he got up out of his seat because I wasn't. And I was like, yeah, our guy friends should be doing that. And they don't, but obviously that's like a difference in like how they were raised. But it's just my friends who, you know, saw that and were like, whoa, like, and then, you know, maybe they're talking to a guy and like the guy's kind of like taking care of them, but in a respectful way. And my rate you know, my most feminist friends are like, no, I I still want to be taken care of. I just want to be respected. And like, for me, I'm like, whenever I marry somebody, like, I know I'm going to be doing all the cooking. I love cooking. I already cook for all of my friends. And 
that's I think the difference now is that you you choose to cook and clean in your house I I will choose to cook and it's not about your boyfriend or uh, somebody else's partner yeah, being like, no, this exactly. Is your and role like, it honestly, it's, relationship. it's, I know it's we're getting a, off track here, choice. but like, it honestly enrages me. I feel like I'm constantly explaining myself to people. Like, we just had people over on <laughs> Easter and like, I made hors d'oeuvres and like, you know, like my party snacks and I had the whole place spotless. And when, it came out that like I do all the cooking and cleaning. People kind of looked at us like, uh, yeah, okay. And I have to be like, no, like he's not like chaining me to this stove. He's a bad cook yeah. and I don't want to eat his food. And like, you know, and also Southern men right. cook too. Like in the South, everybody cooks. It's not a <laughs> gender. Thing. Right. That was really the thing. Like with me, my dad always cooked and like, <laughs> sorry, mom, yeah. if you listen to this, but your cooking wasn't really the most delicious. <laughs> um, and so I think, I think the biggest thing there and like, especially like as it pertains to the home is like it just being a, a choice, you know, if a woman wants to go be the CEO of a fortune 500 company and, and then do it because you can, because you're a woman. If, if you want to be a mother, a stay-at-home mom and tend to the house and the kids and that's your choice do it and it's pretty much like women can do anything and as long as it's their choice and they're not being and, and instead they're being respected by yeah their male yeah and also for doing this that, is and I think like that's moving to a, a, a better place. the final wrap-up I think like like my final takeaway like on both Me Too and feminism in general and gender roles yeah. and all of that. One of the main things that bothers me about when these, like we just had a good conversation about it. Like we're on the same page. But one of the greatest things that bothers me about when people would disagree with right. like our perspective isn't that they're disagreeing, but disagreements about feminism and gender and sexual violence and things like that should never distract you from the main takeaway. Um, like the bigger picture. I think a lot of times with these, what, I don't know what term mm -hmm. you use. It's like a political culture war type thing. A lot, the culture war, like it, it's happening. It's real, war. but also like whatever you do, don't let it distract from the takeaway which is like, we're not, you know, if men and women are fighting about feminism and sexism yeah. and all that stuff, um, and, you know, there's racial tension and all these other things going on, like, that's just a distraction. Like, we need to remember we're all Americans. We're all workers. We all have... At the mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things, like the same basic human yes. needs, and I think a lot of times that these sort of petty squabbles are just used to distract us yes. from the fact that like we're all more powerful together. You know, like we are the people, we have the power, and we shouldn't forget that. Yes, I love that. That was a great thing to end on, and just kind of going on that is that the politics of it, the the media of it, the the culture war of it is really 
we don't realize that at the end of the day, when you just have a conversation with the people closest to you, that most of the time you're really going to agree on the, the, the foundation of it all and the meaning of it all. It's those Mm -hmm. in power and the elites who are trying to use that to pit us against each other. And so just kind of having those conversations and, and really making sure you're understanding the other person in those conversations is really important here in that as it pertains to violence against women, women simply just want it to stop and no politician, no media outlet is going to do it. That's really where culture comes in. And so you have to start with the people closest to you that will then trickle into have a domino effect to everyone else. And this is really a culture thing where at the basis of it all, it's just ensuring that it doesn't happen and it happens less frequently because it happens so much and so often. And it's just so traumatizing and, and it's, it, it, it has to stop. And so I appreciate you so much for coming on and talking about this. And I loved our conversation and we just kind of talked about the whole scope and I commend you for everything that you're doing coming out, you know, publicly with your name, with the LSU stuff and just being a real fighter and an inspiration to women everywhere. I know, you know, I've told my friends about you and they're just in awe about it. And I'm excited for everyone to listen to this episode and I'm excited that we Yeah, and I it. can't wait to see. And I don't think you've yet seen you know, kind the of full impact that of conversation, your so own really story. Like it. it's only been a couple of days, I think, right? Um, I am only excited, like no nerves or trepidation. I am only excited to see yeah. like the impact that this has. Because um, like I was saying, I think domestic issues are so much more complicated yeah. and I think you're just the person <laughs> to explain that. And I just, I think we have good things coming forward. Never miss an episode of pull up a chair. Make sure to subscribe on Apple podcast, follow us on Spotify and anchor Follow us on Instagram at pullupachair.podcast and like us on Facebook at Pull Up a Chair with Ashley Mayer.